love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapters 13 and 14. Isaiah 13 and 14. As you do that, I will tag team with Pastor Tyler for just a moment to mention the article on the back of the bulletin that regards uh, some transition times. And as you know, Pastor Tyler and Karen, Pastor Luke and Jessica are working on heading toward different places of the, of the world for ministry and different types of ministries. And uh, so we're, as you know, people have asked me, are you, are you even thinking about this yet? The answer is yes, but we are not talking about it all the time. I mean, come on, give us a chance, you know. So anyway, on the back, you see uh, information there. We have brought Richard Price on 15 hours a week, uh, January 1st. So that is already taking place, and that's a good role, I think, for him, and you can read about that. And then a little further down, I mentioned that there will be other visits from other potential staff people in the weeks and months ahead. And of course, I use the analogy here of dating. Just because someone shows up and we're dating them doesn't mean we're marrying them. So, so uh, when a person comes, as next weekend, you know, we'll have some guests. Um, uh, man, uh, greet them and say hi and get to know them and so on. But uh, there's a lot of people have asked me questions already, like who's replacing so It doesn't work like that. It just doesn't. Just say hi to people and get to know them, and that will serve us all really, really well. So next week you'll meet some folks, and um, looking forward to that. When I think about topics that pastors love to preach about or not, and people love to hear about or not, right after money is pride. No, really. Like, oh my goodness sakes. I wish so-and-so was here. They really struggle with pride. Well, today, uh, as we come to the book of Isaiah, chapters 13 and 14, we get to think about this topic. Uh, Tim Keller is a retired now pastor. He has written a lot of books, and one of the books he wrote in 2013, Little Thing, you can, uh, I think it's out of print, but you might be able to find it someplace, uh, it's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And it's, attempt, it's an attempt to deal with the issue of pride by defining humility as opposed to pride and pride as opposed to humility in what I think is a very helpful way. The subtitle of his little book is, uh, it emphasizes that the key is to think of yourself less, not to think less of yourself Isn't that helpful? I like that a lot. Thinking less about yourself, not less of yourself. And sometimes when people think about that, uh, we get it all kind of mixed up. Well, we get to think about it this morning because in, in Isaiah 13, we see God preparing to judge a nation for its pride. And the leader of that nation called out specifically for his arrogance And what's especially interesting is the the nation in question is not even yet at the top of the pyramid. They're not even the big dog yet. They're going to be soon, and even as they ascend the the ladder of power uh, nations, God is already preparing to judge them. Isn't that interesting? And even though the leader is not at the top yet, God sees where it's going, and he's getting ready for that day of reckoning. Well, we see a lot about those people, 
But I think along the way, we'll see a lot about us. So I would love to pray and ask God's help. And uh, we'll step into the text here this morning. All right, pray with me, please. Our Father, as always, we open your word with a great sense of joy as we come to the word of the living God. Thank you so much for what you have recorded for us through specially prepared servants of yours down through the ages, that we can have the complete and inerrant authoritative word of God before us. As we read this morning uh, words of judgment, words that come from your heart, telling us things you hate, our Father, help us to see things you love as well and to aspire to those. So help us now in your word, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. As always, on your sermon notes, you will find a few words of review over the last few weeks and uh, things we have wanted to remember together. Encourage you to take the time to read that. Under the section called Today's Text, there's a little bit of context about the section that's ours. Today's text, as I note here, begins a subsection that is sometimes called the Book of the Nations because here God is, is, is going to be talking about the nations that surround Israel at the time. Other uh, prophetic writers do the same thing, uh, but it's a reminder to us that God cares about the nations and indeed, as we'll see in a bit, holds them in his hand. So even as we today even look at our own nation and look at the world and sometimes fret and wonder if, if anybody is steering this ship, uh, these texts, these chapters together remind us indeed that God does have his hand in the work of the nations around the world. He did then, he does now. And next week, uh, we will be looking at a much larger section, um, as you see at the bottom of your, your community group notes. My goodness sakes, how can we look at that big a section? Well, it kind of says a lot of the same thing for a whole series of chapters. As God brings his judgment, we'll see why as we look at that next week. But this morning, we want to look specifically at portions of Isaiah 13 and 14. I'm going to read excerpts today rather than the whole text because of their length, but I think they'll serve as as useful portions for us. So I want to begin in chapter 13. I'm going to read 1 through 5 and then uh, some other excerpts along the way, moving down to to, uh, verses 17 to 19. God's judgment on the nations, specifically here today, focusing only on Babylon, okay? Babylon, a city head of Babylonia, the, the, the nation on the rise, kingdom on the rise, and uh, more about that in a minute. But let's read God's word together then. Isaiah 13, we read this. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw, on a bare hill raise a signal, cry aloud to them, wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. I myself have commanded my consecrated ones and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exulting ones. The sound of a tumult is on the mountains as of a great multitude, the sound of an uproar of kingdoms of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land from the end of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. This is describing, of course, nations gathering to attack Babylon. Very interesting. Verse 6, the first line there, wail for the day of the Lord is near. 
Again, verse 9, behold, the day of the Lord comes. Down to verse 17. Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. Their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. Wow, sobering chapter, especially if you live in Babylon. Like, wow, hey, that, it's got my name on it. Uh, God does not sound pleased with, with us. Now, again, at this moment, uh, Babylon is on the rise. Assyria is at the top. And they're still, they're still taking over the world, so to speak, and will be attacking the southern part of Israel soon, uh, or trying to, as we'll read in the book of Isaiah. But Babylon in the east is, is rising. And even though they're not necessarily the big dog yet, God sees, God knows. He sees where it's going. Wow, this description then of God's judgment on Babylon should catch our attention. Now, several things I mention here in your sermon notes. Pride... Pride is always an affront to God. Pride is always an affront to God. In fact, if you read uh, in the book of Proverbs, the wisdom writer, one of those famous verses, I suppose, begins his list of six things that the Lord hates. No, in fact, seven that are an abomination to him. And where does he begin? Haughty eyes. Haughty eyes, proud tongue, hands that shed innocent blood a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, come on, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. Those are the seven. But he begins the list with a proud tongue. A proud tongue. Six things the Lord hates. Seven, in fact. A proud tongue. Wow, God hates these things. Now, before I go further, I want to define what I'm after here. I mentioned on your, on your sheet here several places, sinful pride. I use that descriptor, sinful pride, because I wouldn't want us to go out there and, uh, you know, we have a five-year-old coming back from a soccer game who makes a goal and walking pretty tall because he actually scored, got away from that whole hub, a crowd of kids on the soccer field, as you know, and actually scored a goal. And you say, wow, you're pretty proud of yourself. Stop it. I'm not after the five-year-olds here. That isn't the point. You got an A, did you? That's nothing. Give glory to God. No, I don't mean that. I'm talking about sinful pride. I'm talking about that, that, that arrogance that, that goes beyond uh, happiness in achievement. All right? So there's, there's a correct happiness in achievement that gives glory to God and has a smile on your face. That's not what I'm after. And I don't think the Bible is after that either. Um, I'm asking you on your, on your community group notes. I think it's in there. I don't have it in front of me. I think I put something in there for, to have you guys de- in your groups kind of define the difference between the two. That should be fun. But, but I'm wanting to draw a difference between sinful pride that is an offense to God. Now, looking at the notes there, pride is always an offense, an affront, affront to God. Something you should know as you read and study the Bible is from the beginning to the end, Babylon is used as kind of an enemy, an enemy of God from the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 all the way to Revelation 18, where Babylon the Great is thrown down. You find Babylon kind of equated with arrogance, human pride, 
in, the, in all the wrong senses, that enemy of God. Genesis 11, Tower of Babel, God had said, uh, spread out and fill the earth. They were all of one language, and they said, not going to do that. We're going to build a tower right here, probably a ziggurat of some sort, possibly astrologically uh, pointed. But, but Babylon, you read this all the way through the prophets, God's judgment on Babylon. So when you read this, you can think, well, there's a city. Well, yes. Uh, capital city of Babylonia, an empire on the rise, as I mentioned, but, but all through the Bible, a symbol of human arrogance and godless achievement. And I, I want at this moment to, to have you flip over with me to the book of Daniel, because you remember just a couple of years ago, we preached our way through the book of Daniel. Chapter four is where I want to go. And this, this story, the story of the book of Daniel takes place after Isaiah, all right, Daniel with his young friends has been taken captive by Babylon when they came and, and wiped out the southern part of Israel. So that's future to Isaiah. This is looking ahead then in the book of Daniel to, to Babylon when it is at the top of the world. That's when this is taking place. And in Daniel 4, we preached our way through this uh, again a couple of years ago. We saw King Nebuchadnezzar have this amazing dream. It's a dream of a tree. Boy, somebody mentioned to me, it seems like trees and rocks show up prominently in Old Testament uh, prophecy. Well, they do. There's a number of places that trees and rocks are used. Well, here, God gives Nebuchadnezzar this dream of a tree, and man, it's majestic and big, and, and the king sees this, and the tree's cut down, and he's just puzzling what all this is about. And so he gets a hold of Daniel, and says, hey, Daniel, I hear you know about these kinds of things. What's this dream about? And Daniel, you'll find in verse 19, he's dismayed for a bit. He's alarmed. And finally, he says uh, in, verse, in verse 19, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, verse 20, all the way down to verse 22, it is you. It is you, O king. And he tells the story of what's going to happen a decree, verse 24, of the Most High. You remember the phrase, Most High, figuring prominently in the book of Daniel. God, Most High, the Ancient of Days. And, and in fact, then you come to verse 28 and 29. Watch this, 30. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. He's the top guy now, Babylon, future to Isaiah. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king answered or responded to the setting, that is, and said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? He's kind of looking around saying, you know, <laughs> I really am pretty amazing. I really am. I mean, look at this place. Thank you, me. Uh, is this not great Babylon? And history would tell us it was a pretty cool place. Uh, hanging gardens of Babylon were one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So clearly well-crafted. But he's walking pretty tall right here. And then it says, verse 31, when the words were still in the king's mouth, there came a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, this is the moment. In other words, this is the moment we were talking about with that vision of a year ago. And you are going to be driven from among men, verse 32, and you're going to live with the animals for a period of time until you know that the most high rules. Wow, God able to humble the proud. And this is going to go on, verse 32, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And indeed, as that all plays out, you see that again in verse 37, as Nebuchadnezzar, on the other end of that season of judgment, 
acknowledges the greatness of God. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Well, that's a little bit of an excursus. I'm going to go back to Isaiah uh, into the future of what Isaiah, uh, by God's direction, is writing about in chapter 13. A beautiful place, Babylon, yes, full of pride, full of pride. Now, I ask you there, of course, in your study notes, why is sinful pride such an offense to God? Why, does, why is God so insulted when people walk tall and take credit for themselves that belongs only to him? Well, I'm going to, again, you're going to keep your finger here in Isaiah 13, but I, I, I'm, I'm going I'm to steal a little bit of thunder from some future texts. Okay, because as we continue our study through the book of Isaiah, there's a major shift that happens in Isaiah 40. Okay, the first 39 chapters um, kind of have more of a historical and judgment and prophetic theme. And then you get to chapter 40 and on, and it's very God-centered and just amazing statements about the greatness of God. And so you come to chapter 40, Verse 15, you see God's view of the nations. The nations are like a drop from a bucket and it counted as the dust on the scales. When he takes up the coastlands, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor its beasts enough for burnt offerings. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. The writer says, Isaiah here in verse 18, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? Similarly, verse 25, to whom then will you compare me? Oh my goodness, it's hard to know which places to read and which ones to to just move right over. But as you read, I've got things highlighted all the way through these texts. Statements from God, chapter 42, verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Wow. Chapter 43, Down to verse 10, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be after me. I, I am the Lord. Besides me, there is no other savior. Amazing. Chapter 45, God names Cyrus, a king who is to come, calls him by name before he exists. Chapter 46 And then we'll go back to to chapter 13. But chapter 46, look at verse 8. Look at this. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. Can you imagine that? I will accomplish all of my purposes, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. God speaks from the throne. Human pride is indeed an affront to God. It says somehow or another, uh, well, I'm stealing a little bit of your glory, and God says, oh, no, you won't. Oh, no, you won't. Anything you have, any achievements you've, you've accomplished, uh, good for you, but it all came from me. It all came from me. I gave you a body that works, a mind that works more or less, depending on who you are. I put you where you are. I put you at this moment in history, on this particular job site or in this particular family. I'm the one who put you there. 
So before you get all proud of yourself, bow the knee before me. I'm the one who did it. Thus says the Lord. Well, uh, looking on down again at your study notes then, chapter 13, uh, verses 1 through 5, is God looking ahead, saying, I'm going to call a nation. I'm going to call, I'm going to call for an army to come to deal with this proud nation that's on the way up. Now, I mentioned here uh, your fourth bullet point, God's judgment on ancient Babylon is merely a preview of his coming judgment on Babylon the Great. Uh, Indeed, verse 6 and verse 9, these are things that you should know as you read and study the Bible. The phrase is used in both of those verses, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. Now, sometimes that phrase speaks of a specific judgment at a moment in history, such as God's judgment on the city of Babylon, and Babylonia itself is a larger empire. The day of the Lord is coming. It's a day of judgment. But in terms of eschatology, future things, there is coming a yet future day of the Lord that New Testament writers talk about. Not specifically God dealing with a single nation, but God dealing with the whole world. So the day of the Lord there's a, there's a specific day of the Lord for Babylon, but it's a preview of the much greater day of the Lord. So even as we saw compressed some of God's seasons of blessing and the work of Messiah, you remember last week, God pressing together in Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 61, first coming and second coming of Messiah. So here, this business of the day of the Lord, uh, it's, it's speaking about then, but it's talking about something much bigger too. If you look at the day and the day of the Lord, you will find yourself in First and Second Thessalonians and Second Peter and certainly the book of Revelation as you watch God's judgment in the future unfold. So God's judgment of Babylon is just a foretaste of greater judgment to come. That makes sense? The day of the Lord. I hope so. Verse 6, verse 9. The day of the Lord is coming for Babylon, but it's also coming for people in the whole earth. I mentioned there in that fifth bullet point, Historically, of course, Babylon will rise after Assyria, and you get to Daniel into chapter 5, the Medes and the Persians take over, proud Babylon, and uh, Babylon falls, Babylon falls. Um, (laughs) The Medes and the Persians give in to Alexander the Great, well, there you go, and on go the nations, rising and falling. Now, Isaiah 14 then, as you look ahead with me. The first couple of verses look ahead to a future restoration of Israel and then return again to our theme for the morning, which is God dealing with a proud country, proud city, and a proud leader. So I want to stay on that theme today. And so I want to read then for this next section, chapter 14, 3 and 4, and then down 12 through 17. All right? When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service from which you were made to serve, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. How the oppressor has ceased, the insolent fury ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers, and on he goes. He's looking ahead past Babylon, even though it has not yet risen, because God can do that. He's looking ahead And saying to his people, there's going to be a day that people will shake their heads at Babylon and the leader of Babylon and say, goodness sakes, what was all that about? You guys thought you were amazing how the mighty have fallen. 
So we're going to take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. That's the, that's the topic in verse 4, okay? You'll take up this taunt against the king of Babylon, and that's what flows on down. I want to read specifically verses 12 to 17, again, in the flow of the context, addressed to the king of Babylon. But hear, hear these words then. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, or the place of the dead, is the understanding of that. Not necessarily hell itself, but Sheol, the place of the dead, to the far reaches of the pit. That's not a good place either. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Watch this. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms? Who made the world like a desert? Overthrew its cities? Who did not let his prisoners go home? So I stop at that point. Um, This is looking specifically, verse 4, at the king of Babylon. Now, several things here. Uh, as you look at your sermon notes again, many down through the years, especially in reading verses 12 through 14 and the five I will statements, you see them. Many have read these verses and said, is he talking here about the king of Babylon as a human or to the, the evil one who inspired him? And there's great debate over this. Um, different writers down through the ages. I think he's talking, at some point, he quit talking about the king of Babylon. He's talking about Satan here. You, I will, I will, I will. I'll make myself like the most high. Uh, Pride, of course, that great sin that caused Satan to fall, it would appear from our understanding of Scripture. Now, I mentioned here, um, there are those who, I'm going to go to my third bullet point. There are some who see this talking about Satan. And again, some writers in the old uh, old world, Jerome Tertullian, took that view. Jerome, of course, the one who translated the Bible into Latin, the Vulgate. Uh, and, then, and then John Milton in Paradise Lost. Others have said, I think, I think he's talking about Satan. But if, if you want the big heavy hitters, Calvin and Luther said, yeah, I don't think so. So um, I, I guess I'm less concerned about picking sides because it's an academic debate. And I'm less concerned about, is this talking about Satan? And I'm more concerned about whether it's talking about me. Do I think like that? Do I want the world to revolve around me? It's easier to have coffee and discuss whether it's about Satan or not. But I do know for sure there's a warning here about how God looks at pride that I better pay attention to. Now, I mentioned here, of course, regarding human leaders, second bullet point, we might think here again of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4, Proud leaders, I mentioned under this heading, proud leaders are an affront to God. Think of Nebuchadnezzar in his being humbled. More modern times, the capture of Saddam Hussein. Those of us who watched the news back in 2003, I know a couple years ago, it doesn't seem like it was that long ago. Remember Saddam Hussein being captured in a spider hole? Yeah, on the run, hiding. You pull open the lid and here he is in the ground? You're kidding, this great leader. I, I right away think of, 
of verse uh, 16. Is this the one who made the whole earth tremble? How you doing down there, buddy? You want a hand getting up? Is this the one who made the whole earth tremble? And as a, as a tongue-in-cheek aside, not an example from the Bible, the Wizard of Oz, for goodness sakes, uh, right? Uh, here's the great and mighty Oz, the great and terrible Oz, and the curtain that opens, and here's this little guy back there working the... Like, is this the one? Is this the one who has the whole place of Oz, uh, you know, in a tizzy? Yes, you? Well, yes, as a matter of fact, it is. Is this the one who made the whole earth tremble? Wow. No, God is able to humble the proud. And I, I look at Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 14, and whether those five I will statements would, be, would have been on the lips of Satan himself as he fell from a place uh, of honor, fallen angel, of course. Uh, you can discuss that as you read the, the, the cross-reference I gave you there in Ezekiel 28. Um, but but I, I, I don't mind the academic discussion, though I don't think you can necessarily, conclusively prove your point. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a discussion, would there? But again, I read this kind of a text and I say, wow, whether it's talking about Satan or the king of Babylon, one thing is for certain. God hates pride. He hates it in a nation. God hates pride in leaders. And he is able to take down both leaders and nations that operate in pride. Some years ago, uh, C.J. Mahaney uh, was asked to write a book on humility how would you like that assignment? Chapter one, or in the preface, I don't remember which, he starts off by saying, man, this is, a, this is a terrifying undertaking. The minute you start writing a book on humility, you think, wow, this book company asked, asked me to write a book on humility. <laughs> you see where this is going in a hurry? <laughs> Clearly, they thought I would be the best one to write this. Oh, dear. <laughs> I'm done now. Uh, better give that assignment elsewhere. Oh, humility. It's a good book. Uh, emphasizing the, the opposite, of course, of pride. But pride is always an affront to God. Proud leaders are also an affront to God. I mentioned a couple of cross-references here. Uh, I think based on Proverbs 3.34, which you can look at uh, and, and see how James and Peter uses this. But I just want to remind you of how the New Testament repeats these lessons for our good. They are illustrated often in the Old Testament in the lives of people where you see examples of this. But the New Testament writers continue to see the pursuit of humility as an important part of growth and godliness and worthy of all of us saying, oh God, help me to be that. That is, again, to think as Tim Keller, that I would think of myself less, not necessarily less of myself, but less about myself, that I would quit thinking that the world revolves around me. James 4, then, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit therefore yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. The text goes on to say, Peter, then, similarly, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. That's in a context of talking about church leaders. Did you know that? Church leaders, those who are led, he's talking about both. Uh, the first part of that verse uh, says, and you younger people as well, 
submit yourself to your leaders and so on. And then here, clothe yourselves, all of you, by the way, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may lift you up or he may exalt you, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. And that's the text where it says, be, be vigilant. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same struggles you have are also being experienced by your brothers and sisters in the world. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion. That's in the context of battling pride and embracing humility. Now, to keep this from being uh, just a, I suppose, a more academic approach, I, I want to think with you under the section called Responding to God's Word. I want to think with you about this for a few minutes. Are you an arrogant person? Do you struggle with pride? Don't have to answer that out loud. Would others who know you think that you struggle with pride? What things would they be seeing that you might not? And then I give a list here, and I'm taking that list, not from my own imagination, but um, I'm author, writer, seminary professor Stuart Scott, in one of his books, um, in fact, it's written to men. It's called The Exemplary Husband. Copies available for all the wives in the church. Um, yeah. Uh, this helpful section that I think I turn to more often than many of the other parts of the book, but he, he has a couple of lists. Uh, one, he says, manifestations of pride, and then a couple pages later, manifestations of humility. And these bear your reading, every single one of us. I, I, don't, th- I don't think there are any of us who, who would not benefit from thinking through a list like this. So he would, I'm just going to read part of it, um, because if you read all 30 of them, you wow. Okay. It's a lot to think about. He lists things like this, manifestations of pride, um, a lack of gratitude in general, Proud people usually think they deserve what is good. No reason to be thankful for what they receive. They deserve it. Anger. A proud person's offering often an angry person. Someone's violated their rights. Seeing yourself as better or smarter than other people. A proud person usually looks down on other people's opinions or evaluations. What do they know? An inflated view. An inflated view of your own importance, gifts, and abilities. Proud people have a wrong perception of themselves. Being focused on your lack of gifts and abilities. Isn't that interesting? He would say, one evidence of pride uh, is, is, of course, that you're focused on yourself. And sometimes a woe is me attitude. I'm nothing. I have no nothing. Just, there's no good here. That, too, is an evidence of pride. How can that be pride? Well, Stuart Scott and other biblical counseling-type writers would say, in the, in the vein of Kim Keller, if your main focus is you, whether thinking you're great or thinking you're awful, the main person in your life is still you. You're still thinking about yourself all the time. Isn't that interesting? So think of yourself less, Keller would say. 
Moving on, perfectionism. People who strive for everything to be perfect often do so for recognition. They do it so they feel good about themselves. Oh, boy. How about this? Talking too much. Proud people who talk too much often do it because they think that what they have to say is more important than what anybody else has to say. Oh, Lord, help me. Talking too much about yourself. Being consumed with what others think. I'm only on number 11. (sighs) Wow. And it goes all the way down to 30. Being unteachable. Being devastated by criticism. How about that? Wow. Being defensive. Blame shifting. Lack of admitting it when you're wrong. Lack of prayer. Proud people don't pray much. Wow. Resisting authority or being disrespectful. That person's no better than me. What do they know? Clearly not much. It's a good thing I'm here. Minimizing your own sin. Being impatient or irritable with others. Wow. That's half the list. I think that to be human, to be human, is to struggle on some level with pride. Thinking too much about ourselves. Thinking of ourselves too much. Keller's book, the title, I think, is the goal, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, to be more occupied with others and the good of others than with me and how you can serve me. Well, this text, Isaiah 13 and 14, is about God humbling a proud nation, and he sees it on the horizon. It's like he smells it coming, and he gets ready to smash it. And then more specifically, chapter 14, a leader. And God says, no, you're too big for your britches, and I know what to do with you. In the right time, the right place, God took him down. Oh, Lord, help us all. My prayer, I suppose, I put at the bottom here, that I would suggest for all of us, would you pray this morning that God would help you to grow in humility? God would help you to grow in humility. I think that's a worthy prayer. For that, we need Jesus, don't we? Every single day. I would love to have you stand with me as we pray, and uh, we'll go as we think about this and um, ask God to help us. Father, I thank you so much for your word. Um, We acknowledge uh, our own need for Christ uh, to, to help us to have, as Paul says in Romans 12, an accurate view of ourselves, not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Oh, Father, give us that ability to think about others more and Christ most of all. Thank you, our Father, that you indeed are great, greater than any human, any nation, Nations rise or fall at your bidding. Thank you that you are that, and all glory belongs to you. And we thank you for this portion of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen.